Welcome to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast, where you can learn about the innovative ideas and technologies reshaping the healthcare industry. Join over 150,000 monthly readers and listeners all over the world. Each week, we sit down with some of the most brilliant minds in healthcare to learn what the future holds. The Healthcare Weekly Podcast, healthcare innovation starts here. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. I'm Kojan Arsene, CEO of Digital Authority Partners and Healthcare Weekly. Today, I'm talking to Amr Inam. He is the Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer at Actera Edge. Amr has also worked in various AI roles at the Cambia Health Solutions, Nike, and PwC. Amr, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. And Amr, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. This is mentioning in the prepping time before the recording, you're what I would call a generalist when it comes down to artificial intelligence, which comes in very handy when it comes down to explaining complex topics and notions and themes. And artificial intelligence as a whole, it's kind of a nebulous thing. It's like one of those words, like everybody's using it like digital transformation, but nobody knows exactly what it means. So I want to really start at the highest level. And let's just talk about like what is artificial intelligence and how does it apply to the healthcare space? Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, it's a good question. It's a good way to start the conversation too. Artificial intelligence or AI has kind of became the new buzzword. So if you look at the Gartner's hype cycle, it, it's, it's really hyped up right now. And a lot of what we see in the marketplace is described as AI is the good old statistical models or even some aspects of data science, right? In a way, it kind of became the big data, quote-unquote, of this era. To kind of demystify and and then cutting to the core of it, the way I like to address AI is essentially utilizing a set of algorithms or mathematical concepts or algorithms that learn from the amount of the data and the complexity of the data that an organization has, and then find the best way to synthesize it and then deliver actionable insights that augment human decision-making. I'm describing it at a very high level. And then where does the AI component comes into this by definition? So if you think about the data versus decision-making, it's a two-by-two. And on one side, we have spectrum. We have simple data and, and in complex data. And on the other spectrum, we have simple decisions and complex decisions. And all we can even say, homogeneous data and then heterogeneous data and then homogeneous decisions versus heterogeneous decisions. So when we create this two by two, there are certain, when we have simple homogeneous data coming in with simple homogeneous decisions that need to, to be drive, to, to be driven, humans are very good at it because we can pull in from our experiences, which is critical, our memories and our collective experiences to make an informed decision. Where AI starts to come into play are when we have significant amount of heterogeneous data, like very complex, large, wide variety of data, something that humans, our brains are not designed to consume or make sense of. And then when we have to make decisions also that are heterogeneous and very complex in a way that it's too many decisions, too many nuances, and individualized at hyper speed, hyper scale, this is where, again, we cannot consume that amount of data and we cannot make those types of decisions on the fly. So AI then is very well suited for solving those kinds of very complex problems. And then kind of taking a step out of the healthcare, I can use an example of real-time digital display auction bidding. 
in ad display when we go to websites. There are bids happening in real time in microseconds for that small space of ad space for each individual user that is looking at an article, for example. So that type of decisioning is basically impossible for humans to, to drive. So AI is really good at making sense for very complex data and then driving very complex decisions at scale. The realities of the example you provided, that can be applied to healthcare. Like we have pharma <laughs> marketers who basically listen to the podcast. And like your example, mm-hmm. to put it very simply, could be just look at how Google is rendering ads for your mm-hmm. healthcare company yeah. in real life using a tremendous amount of personalized data, even if it's anonymous, to serve different ad units to a user as that user is going from one part of the internet to the other. Yeah. And I'll bring another example from a healthcare perspective, right? So let's say you are a health insurance firm. And as a payer side of the thing, one of the key challenges for many chief primary officers is the potential for fraudulent and misspellings in the claims. The challenge with that is that many firms utilize these very large kind of a audit-based processes to where we have all of these bills come through and then the bills are paid and then there's an audit trail that is created and the audit process will start to look into where mistakes may have been made. And then those things start to then, the firm will reach back out to the doctors or the hospitals about, hey, what is this bill about? Why was it billed this way? And in many cases, what we see is that six months or seven months after a procedure, the patient or the member may get the bill that you owe this much money, which usually causes member abrasion because of bad consumer experience. The idea behind it is that why let you go that far and why use such a complicated process that is very asynchronous, right? And then creates this member abrasion. And is there a way to identify these potential fraudulence and misspellings of claims in real time and then have a solution that is solving putting in the moment versus waiting for it to be solved much later on? So that's another example where you have enormous complex data coming in about claims with all of the diagnostics codes and this and that, what is within the benefits and not benefits and what's covered and not covered, and then tremendous amount of the data right, that has to be made sense of. But with AI, it can allow us to synthesize that complexity of the data and defy potential fraudulent activity and actually be able to classify what is a fraudulent activity versus a potential misbilling and be able to rectify that in the moment without letting it cascade all the way to the member of the patient. This is another example of that. Just to put it in simple terms, I really like this example. But really what you're talking about is today, the process of validating specific medical procedures is very manual. If I go to my doctor in a hospital and the doctor says, you need this and this procedure, what the doctor is going to tell me is, uh, I'm going to get in touch with the insurance and clear it off, right? Like get approval, right? I think it's called Mm -hmm. pre-authorization. And the reality is that 99% of the time, these pre-authorizations are approved right off the bat without any further questions to the doctor. However, because the system is so broken, it continues to be that a doctor or a nurse has to contact the insurance, when in reality, Mm -hmm. that is the definition of like, if this, then that approval, which is how artificial intelligence or predictive Mm -hmm. analytics or just analytics was built to begin Mm -hmm. with. Like, this is an excellent use case. They're like, we shouldn't have this. We should not live 
in a country where a doctor must get on a phone call with a claim adjuster or claim representative. This information mm-hmm. should be able to be passed automatically and an approval code should be provided by an AI for the vast majority of the cases. And if you would need to escalate specific cases to a human, then that's fine. But yeah. majority of the time you want. So why mm-hmm. employ tens of thousands of these claim adjusters, put mm-hmm. pressure on the system, aka the hospital yeah. system? This yeah. is excellent example of where AI could make a huge dent and save money both for insurance and for hospitals. And to your earlier point, reduce the friction that the patient Mm -hmm. has with the health system. Going back to when you asked about like, what is AI? AI is very good at solving very specific niche problems. If we give a very specific pain point, we identify the specific pain point. And then utilize AI-based approaches to solving it. It's really good at that. Failure comes into play when more and more things can get added and confound the problem itself. So in this case, it's as simple as automating pre-authorization on the medical system side and on the provider side. And on the payer side, is as simple as automating identification of fraudulence and misspellings and resolving that without human in the loop, which is the current process. And then on both sides of the thing, allowing AI to solve 80 to 90% of the cases, and then about 10 to 20% of the cases can then be escalated and solved by a human expert where that level of mitigation or involvement is needed. But the amount of efficiency that can be brought into the system on this. Can you talk about different types of AI? Like we've talked about specific use cases, which is great. Yeah. We've talked about what AI is in general, but I think there's a lot of people listening to podcasts who may still not be mm-hmm. clear, like, okay, when you slice and dice artificial intelligence, what are the yeah. different AI forms and components that makes up mm-hmm. the discipline called artificial intelligence? I'll start a little bit broadly, right? So AI, when we think about that in a broadest term, the first image that comes to mind are basically these almost human-like cyborgs, right? I would say that we are nowhere close to that as far as the science and research is concerned. So I would consider that, and I think I would call that a strong AI, let's say, that many researchers are calling. So a strong AI is still a little bit far ahead into the horizon. Are you talking here about AGI? I'm yeah, sure basically. We have the... Yeah. So is AGI what you're saying that is far into the future? Yeah. And then coming to what is real and possible today with the data that we have and then where we can augment basically human decisioning. So we will get closer to machine learning itself. So machine learning within that, if we can classify the types of problems that we are trying to solve for. So one problem is when we have the data, but we don't know what we're solving for. We're looking for patterns. When we're looking for patterns and trying to identify those, that class of machine learning techniques are called unsupervised learning. And within that, complexities with mathematical sciences and then different types of algorithms and neural networks and also that kind of gets into the realm of based on the complexity of the problem, but keeping it a bit high level, so unsupervised learning. So this is where we are clustering or classifying. An example of that would be so when I talked about fraud detection, because we don't know what the fraud is or what fraudulent activities might be. So we can utilize an unsupervised learning-based approach to ask the machine, Go and then find different combinations and clusters and types of events that are happening in our claims. And then show me what you find. 
And then these micro clusters, the small clusters of information, you'll start to see that there's a pattern to them. And then there are certain things that are anomalous. So once we identify those things that are anomalous, then we can click into that to see what is causing it, right? So we can understand those, those behaviors. Another way this comes into play is segmentation and personalization when we get into that realm. So thinking about reducing dimension of the data. Then the other class of problems that we can get into is what is called supervised learning, where we have a target. We are trying to solve a problem. We know the problem, and we need to utilize data to basically help us predict that outcome. For example, classic example of regression. So a lot of the regression-based methods are really going to be supervised learning. So for example, if there is a model that's being built to identify hospital readmission rate, in this case, we know what we're trying to predict. It's the drivers of what leads to readmission that we are trying to identify. And in that case, the drivers that can be actionable, right, that we can utilize to take an action on. That class of so-called like AI in this case within machine learning realm would be supervised learning. I just wanted to stop for a second and just to frame yeah. this. So for our listeners, supervised learning is ultimately the most common type of artificial intelligence in existence mm-hmm. today on the market. Yeah. It's where you have both the input and the desired output defined. And what you mm-hmm. are doing, you are tweaking the artificial intelligence to the point that you can make sure that when certain inputs come in, the appropriate output is provided to mm-hmm. uh, the decision maker. So for people who don't, you know, you may not know this as being an AI, but like chatbots are the quintessential mm-hmm. example of supervised learning. Yeah. Like you have yep. 50 different ways you can answer a question. If the user says this, then you provide this answer. Tesla, self-driving cars, it's supervised mm-hmm. learning. Like you know what you want right. the car to do. You just have to mm-hmm. continue improving it until it does that. And it doesn't like go into a building or do something stupid. So supervised yeah. learning, like within your explanation, that is the definition of majority of business stakeholders with regards to what mm-hmm. AI can and cannot do. Thank you for that clarification there. And then the third category, I will say that it is semi-supervised learning, which is a combination of supervised and supervised, where we can start with a unsupervised approach to lead to identification of the target that we're trying to solve for that can go into a supervised learning algorithm. But the third bigger category, I would say, is reinforcement learning. And there's a lot of development that's happening in this space. Reinforcement learning essentially is an agent-based approach to it, which is continuously learned from the environment in a highly iterative fashion. And in the process of learning, the agent experiences the environment and it explores all possible range of possible states. What we do is we give the agent a risk or a reward, and then the agent would explore the environment. And based on the risk and the reward, it will start, of course, like learning all the edges on, on how bad things can get and then start to get better and better and better and then eventually give a solution that is going to be the best possible solution where the system will find the most reward out of it. So an example, like I'll say from OpenAI, it was kind of really interesting and exciting development with OpenAI where they had used a reinforcement learning-based approach to train agents to play hide-and-seek. For the agents that were hiding in the game versus those who were seeking, they gave them risk and rewards. And then they, essentially the idea was you have to hide. And if you don't get found, then you win. And then for the seekers, you have to find them. And they give them a few initial 
training approaches to that and then allowed the agents to interact by themselves using the risk and reward system. And after a few iterations, both agents started to learn themselves. And then the agents that were hiding started to find more and more novel approaches to hide. And then the seekers started to find ways to find them. So within this artificial environment, the, the agents that were hiding, they will move blocks around or they'll hide under the block. And then the seekers will climb on top of the box. So it's a fascinating way to see like something that humans, if we are playing hide and seek as a game, the way we would continue to play the game by looking for more and more complex ways to hide and win or more and more innovative way to find and seek and win plays out. So in real life, like in business terms, where does that come into play? Maybe we can look into that and then actually recently created a solution for logistics. And a problem in the logistics, which is very relevant to also healthcare, is that when you're trying to move products and then ship them from multiple warehouses, you have trucks that are moving to multiple locations and they are delivering to multiple locations. And then we have to make sure that the trucks that are moving, they are carrying full load of capacity. So they're not running less than load. And then, then we're also trying to minimize the top of it, the distances that they have to travel to ensure that the highest priority product gets delivered in sequential order. So it creates a very complex problem to solve. So we utilize reinforcement learning-based approach to solving that. And then where that can come into play is thinking purely from a delivery of equipment. So for example, a large medical products and services provider who has to basically ship products to hospitals and clinics and pharmacies their own different sequencing of needs, we can create a system like this to make sure that the products that are needed get delivered at the right time for the right people with the right sets of priorities. So it's interesting that you're bringing up the topic of logistics and healthcare, especially Mm -hmm. with the COVID-19 outbreak. We've seen both a fear of supply chain shortages, but also a reality that people were basically stocking up, you know, like everybody knows that people are stocking up on toilet paper. Fewer people know that people are actually not just stocking up on, let's say, medicine for chronic conditions, Mm -hmm. but also the supply chain as a whole was impacted by COVID-19. So when you're talking about these solutions, I wonder if you can talk more specifically, let's say you're a company like Pfizer and you do insulin and Mm-hmm. You're dispatching all of these insulin batches across the country. What are some mm-hmm. of the challenges that you have with that process of making insulin and making sure you distribute it equitably across the country? And how could AI potentially help model the right distribution mm-hmm. of medical supplies? That's a very good question. Very relevant to the situation we are facing because especially in healthcare system, the reliance on outside of the healthcare. So for example, the logistics service is very critical and how AI can help in this case. So if we think about the value chain, right, from manufacturing products globally to shipping them across the oceans in many cases by air and then by the roads and then eventually by humans into the hands of hospitals and clinics and pharmacies that need the product. So there are too many touch points here. And right now with the shelter at home regulations plus lack of availability of truck drivers, to be honest, which is a problem that not just healthcare, but CPG and retail, like the entire industry is facing. 
the lack of availability of the trucks and the truck drivers. On top of that, then we have other additional complexities around weather patterns and stuff like that. So we are about to move into the hurricane season into the oceans, right? There's an impact on the shipping from that. Other docks that are not allowing ships to dock and stuff like that. So there are challenges associated with that. On top of that, there's a cost element in terms of what to ship by water, what to ship by air. And then where, once we do ship by water versus air, where they should land, in what port, in what countries, and then from there on to the distribution centers and into the hands of the end consumer. So the entire network is very complex as it is when it's working in normal scenarios. So there are, of course, many AI-based systems that are currently being deployed by very large medical equipment supply firms that are global in nature to understand things. So one of the solutions back in my past that we had built was around looking at impact of the climate and, in fact, impact of the weather patterns, so hurricanes and all, their impact on being able to deliver the right product at the right time all the way to the end so that there could be risk mitigation plans put in ahead of the time before the product was even shipped out. So that, for example, is one scenario that, that we played with. Then recently, we are actually engaging with several clients on identifying, given the right now, so let me take a step back. So one is, Number one, identification and assessment of the demand itself. How much of the demand is real and needed and critical versus where the patterns for holding we are seeing. So, for example, NHS is using AI to predict the demand for ventilators and ICU. The demand prediction itself is a critical step. Once we identify the demand, where it is needed, why it is needed, the priority of that demand in a way from an essential versus non-essential, understanding from a pattern recognition where we may be seeing patterns of coding. So that becomes a way to understand and classify where things need to be shipped versus where needs to be addressed different ways, the cases of hoarding as an example. The second then comes into play is identification of where the products are in terms of the manufacturing cycle versus where they're needed. And within the value chain, all the hurdles that they have to go through. So the reinforcement learning-based approach, for example, that I mentioned is one way we were solving for it. But Hurdles in this case is availability of trucks, availability of truck drivers. We're talking about the land, availability of warehouse workers, given the shelter at home challenges that we are under. And then going back to the air versus what to ship. And then based on the time and the cost, what needs to get where. So as we start to look into all of these data, it becomes a fairly complex problem. And an AR, in a way, is a way to understand the complexity of the system. In this case, it's not going to solve it, right? It's going to tell us where the bottlenecks are likely to be that are going to create a hurdle in getting a product that is being manufactured, let's say, in Asia and in going to Europe or to North America. All of the hurdles it's likely to get into, given the situation that we have. And then that would allow a human decision maker to make some decisions around where to kind of bypass or how to kind of work around these problems. AI can also help is actually if there are potential solutions being looked at, for example, if the idea of looking at broadening, let's say, the availability of trucks and the truck drivers from large trucking organizations to more independent trucking and looking at creating like a marketplace type of environment, and then that is a solvable problem to where it can go around and look for potential avenues and solutions to see how to solve it. 
So it's still, in the end, it's a very complex problem where AI can augment the human decision-making, but it will all come down to data, like what data is available, because many of these data elements are still anecdotal or, in a way, coming through. It's not coming in a way that can be consumed by an AI engine, right, as far as the availability is concerned. So as that data starts to get plugged in, the AI engines can be trained to identify these bottlenecks and then recommend actionable insights around how to go around them. It's interesting, as you're talking about this complex scenario, I just keep putting myself in the shoes of, let's say, a CDO at Pfizer who has to Mm -hmm. deal with a bunch of these complex issues. One of the things that comes up, like as you're explaining all of these different complexities, is the fact that maybe this reinforcement Mm -hmm. learning could be beneficial, but also it seems like it's kind of a headache, right? It could be very expensive, could take a lot Mm -hmm. of time, it may be wrong. So like, how do you address that question? That is a critical element to it. So the approach that we take to creating AI-based solution, especially specifically addressing that scenario, is an approach what we called mindful AI. And the idea behind mindful AI essentially is kind of hones in into human centricity is let's not rush into how to solve because there are already solutions looking for a problem. And then there's a research from Gartner that shows that 90% of AI initiatives fail to materialize and drive value because they lack a sense of relevancy to the business problem itself. So the idea behind that is to hone in and understand what to solve and why to solve. It's a mindset shift a little bit, taking more of a scientific approach, starting with more of a design science-based approach versus starting with an engineering-based approach. So you start with a scientific approach and deliver with engineering. And it's a mindset shift a little bit, which requires us to drive awareness and a purposefulness of the intentions that we're trying to solve for. And then the emotions that we hope to invoke this experience. And emotion in the sense that is this sense of relevancy and in connection which drives adoption. What you mentioned in terms of the complexity around that is that there are honing in into the critical at the most fundamental level, foundational level, what is the pain point we're trying to solve for? And essentially, starting with that and then why to solve, which generally a lot of organizations struggle with that, right? The next step is then is a hypothesis-based approach to uncovering the data within the context of what and the why to solve and understanding the pain points. These are the key drivers for the problems themselves. So as these hypotheses start to evolve, they would inform the end AI model or the engine that we would build, and it will be done and built with a sense of transparency, which is very critical in driving adoption. And it will build with business relevancy because in many cases, when AI engineers are building solutions, they are not experts in the domain that they're building solutions for. And on the other side of the table, we have domain experts who don't understand AI well. So by taking this collaborative approach to building a solution with transparency, which, again, has critical elements of explainability and all that kind of packaged into it, right? And then you're building a solution that would drive adoption. Then within the adoption component itself, from a transparency perspective, based on the quality of the data, Setting up parameters around what is the definition of done, what is acceptable, because the quality of the data may allow for only a 60% at best solution, 
But even that 60% at best solution, or even if a solution is as good as the human decision-making today, that is still a good solution because if it's as good as from an accuracy perspective or the outcomes perspective, the human decisioning, that right there, we've already driven tremendous amount of efficiency in the process. So if it's a 60% solution or an 80% solution, still very solid solution. Then the next element of that, given where we are in terms of the accuracy driven by the data that is available, the quality of the data, the challenges of driving adoption of AI systems within an organization, the human in the loop element is, is fairly critical because in the end, empowering a group of humans to augment their expertise and decision-making with what AI is providing them is a critical element to that. And then that trust that needs to be built between an AI engine and a human decision-maker is then critical in driving continuous enhancement and improvement of that AI engine so that we can drive better and more consistent decisions. One element that I do also want to talk about is an ethical element here too. Because of the mindfulness aspect to this part of the philosophy, here is an aspect of the ethics that needs to be addressed. And there are systemic biases that exist in healthcare system, which is, again, very well documented and researched. And the AI gets blamed for perpetuating and magnifying these biases. The problem is not as much AI. The problem is how it's built. And the problem is not addressing and recognizing that these biases exist in the system. So by taking this mindful, very transparent approach to it, we are also pushing for taking more of a responsible approach to it and identifying where biases may exist within the data itself because data is a reflection of the system itself. So if we can identify the biases that exist in the data itself, then it allows us to design these experiments and the design the rest of the AI study to address those potential biases head on versus assuming and then hoping that it doesn't exist. So I just wanted to call that out because ethical element is extremely critical when we are talking about healthcare industry because every decision impacts the human life. Well, what you said was that the bias is in the system itself. I think what you meant is that the data itself feeding the AI is biased. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, unless you have a developer who basically runs a mock and puts a biased rule in the system, the mm -hmm. development of the AI solution itself won't be biased. But you mm -hmm. may have data that is biased and how it's collected and fed into the AI. So like I want to like yeah. give an example. So let's say you are running AI algorithms for population health in Chicago, which is where I live. Mm -hmm. And you have data from the south side of Chicago, which is an African-American oh. community the data itself could be biased for a variety of reasons. It could be that people are not yeah. going to doctors enough because they don't have access to medical insurance. Or mm -hmm. it could be that they're predisposed to certain medical conditions. So like we know, for example, like that high blood pressure, diabetes are conditions that impact African-American mm -hmm. community yeah. disproportionately. I think what you're saying is that all of those things that exist among humans, when it's fed to the machine, it could lead to a bias. Like, I don't want yeah. people to think, hey, people are building AIs and the AI is biased. No. AI is AI, right? AI is just, yeah. you're feeding rules and rules and rules and data. And based on all of that data and the rules in place, you make decisions. 
Yeah, that's exactly. And then, which is why, I mean, it's critical to kind of decouple the algorithm design and building of AI solutions from truly understanding the data that's going into it, right? Number one, we have to acknowledge that biases do exist in our system, in our society, and those biases do reflect and they get captured in our data. So as they're getting captured in the data itself, then we can actually, instead of being, so, so in a way, like a lot of articles get written about the bias in AI, and in fact, like, why fear AI? Why not embrace AI and then use AI to identify the biases that exist? And it's a great use case for unsupervised learning. Like, we can create algorithms to go run through our databases to say, like, hey, identify these anomalous patterns that could be potential users for bias. And of course, this might give nightmares to corporate lawyers in a way, but why fear what exists in the data? And in fact, internally, if you can create a repository of where issues might be, it will allow the chief legal officer and chief ethics officer, if the firm have them, to actually work together with the chief data officer to put together these ethics governance policies on the data itself so that before the data gets used to build these AI solutions, it can go through those checks and balances. And then then you're building a solution that has all of these rigors built around it, right? And then typically when we see that is that many cases, these experts are not brought into the AI process. And then in the end, when we're building a solution that impacts human life, and especially in a regulated industry where the threat of lawsuits is very high, and we already see in some cases, for example, Optum was recently, I think, sued by a state of New York around one of their products, right? So allowing these things to go too far is a risk. So this is just an idea around how do we put these checks and balances before things can potentially go far and embracing AI to help us identify these and mitigating this is another example or use case for unsupervised learning that I mentioned earlier. And this happens all the time. It's very much a society issue, which is fear Mm -hmm. of something new or something different, right? It's no different than a certain discourse that we've seen in this country against immigrants. It's like you have a Mm -hmm. fear of the difference and you're applying it. It's the same thing with artificial intelligence. AI is new. AI is machine. People feel like they cannot trust it. But it's a very rational fear at the end of the day, right? I mean, the reality is that, and this is something I continue to tell people at conferences, Mm -hmm. at events, in person, which is you need to realize that once artificial intelligence is implemented correctly, if you have the mind of one doctor, now you have the mind of 100,000 doctors. You're gaining on the collective knowledge, wisdom, and data that comes from a huge data set, which can Mm -hmm. and should be better than any one given individual when it comes down to the output. Of course, I can have this discussion 50, 100 times. If people are going (laughs) to be afraid because it's in their DNA to be afraid, nothing is going to change. But we have to divorce the two different things, which is you cannot just distrust AI for the sake of distrusting it. And even when you find biases, those are reflective of things that can be fixed, just like Mm -hmm. you fix a bias among humans. However, you did raise one point that I want to get some clarification on, which is like, okay, there's biases. And like with any software ever built on planet Earth, there will be mistakes. And Mm -hmm. just like with any software, you do QA, you fix it, you check again you improve, 
algorithmically and otherwise over time, and that's totally fine. If you've worked in software development, you know this is the normal process. Yeah. But in the healthcare yeah. space, a question that's very relevant to this, and it's like half legal, half philosophical, but I do want to kind of pose it and see what your take is on it. Sure. So in healthcare in particular, if AI is wrong, like who do you blame? Yeah, that's a loaded question. And I think the blame, oh boy, uh, let me think through that for a quick. So who to blame? It depends, right, on how the system was designed and what it was designed to do and how it is being used. So an example of that, I'll say, is that if the system was designed without enough due diligence page to the back-end data, then the blame falls on the data side of the things, both the data governance as well as the folks who designed the AI engine. If the engine was designed, which most cases it is right now, is designed to have a human in the loop as a decision maker, but in this case, the human decision maker has made a decision that was contrary to what may have been either recommended by AI or used that AI recommendation, which may, let's say, have a low confidence around it, but without using a judgment. Because in this case, if you are implementing a human-in-the-loop-based approach to it, then the human judgment is critical, right? Not just use AI output as is. So if a low confidence inside gets used as is, as if it's a high confidence and gets used wrongfully to drive the decision that is bad, then in that case, the decision, it falls on the individual. But in a way, in both cases, it falls on a bad design, to be honest which is why the amount of rigor that is needed to build AI system for healthcare is so critical. And then that human centricity is an aspect that is very critical to make sure that all the elements of human decision maker are captured in the design itself. Try not to give a cop-out answer, but in a way what I'm saying is everyone is to blame. That is part of the process end-to-end. You did say something that's very true and I'm going to, Pause on this for a second. You said bad design. It makes sense. One of the things we've seen for the last five years, it's very unfortunate, but we've seen it, is this huge backlash against chatbots. And with a lot mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. saying, okay, chatbots are dumb. I cringe every single time I hear someone <laughs> say chatbots are dumb because it's so uninformed, bordering yes. stupid to think that mm-hmm. a chatbot can be dumb or smart. The reality is that a chatbot is something you configure, you launch, and you have to oversee. You have to look at the data coming in. You have to come up yep. with new scenarios. And then, yep. like, of course, there's no such thing as a perfect chatbot. But people just assume I built it, launched it, and it's done. And that's not <laughs> how things work because you can ask for the same thing 50 different times, 50 different ways. Yep. And yep. a chatbot is not expected to know those answers up front. But if you have humans, who deploy a chat button from day one, they have the ability to look at the analytics of every question, particularly when the chatbot didn't have an answer, and then to tweak mm-hmm. it and to add new rules and new rules, then of course the chatbot gets better. But it's not the fault of yeah. the chatbot technology, but like everybody who they say, like you look up, everybody listening to podcasts, just look up our chatbots done, and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of articles. The question is completely wrong. And it's the same thing yes. with artificial intelligence. The AI you're building is only as smart as you, the human behind it, is at one given moment in time. And then you launch it. And then you look into it. And then you tweak it and improve it over time. It's not a one-and-done deal. 
No, you, you brought a great one. Actually, I'll quote another statistic I have recently seen is that about 70% of the models that get built are versions 1.0. They don't get tested again. And of course, with the problems that exist of data that drifts over time as the business evolves, and then the algorithms that stagnate and drift over time. So if you keep using the same stuff that was built a year or two ago, and of course, it's going to get bad over time. So in AI, self-learning is so critical that feedback loop from how things are getting used in the hands of humans, what decisions it's driving, the outcomes. Outcomes can be good, outcomes can be bad. doesn't matter. Outcomes, capturing the outcomes and feeding that back into the algorithms or neural nets it's extremely critical because that is how the AI gets better. And so the point you mentioned of the chatbot, you know, the thing is, there's a combination of, on one side, on the technology side, there's a lot of hubris. On the other side, on the user's community side, there's a lot of skepticism. So when you match hubris with skepticism, you get this perfect storm. And then as AI practitioners, we have to basically cut through both sides of these things and then inform the business leaders that, number one, ignore that, both of those things. Number two, focus on what is possible, what is feasible, and what is possible and what is feasible comes from identifying its specific problems. AI is very good at it when we have a very specific problem identified. And the chat part is a great point you mentioned. Context matters. Context matters. Context is so critical. But building a generalist or generic chatbot, and then we, we hear about Microsoft built a chatbot and then released it to Reddit, and within a day, it turned into a Nazi chatbot because it just learned from those interactions and people knew how to fool it, right? And then those kinds of stories get magnified, which is important to be aware of too. But within the context of the business, we're not building a generalist chatbot. We are building a device or an AI engine that is looking at majority of the questions that are coming into our system from our chat logs, from our voice call centers, and we can create basically a knowledge base of that, create topic models using natural language processing to identify 60 to 80% of the types of problems that could potentially be solved with a simple chatbot embedded into devices or websites, and it reduces the burden on our call centers and in our nerd lines, right? And it's the specific harder problems that chatbots are today not trained to solve or respond to, then in an asynchronous approach to it, then you bring the human in the loop where the chatbot can redirect that and connect to a human expert to solve that problem. And in that case, by the way, you're also informing with the chat log that is what the problem is so that the human that is solving that problem or responding to that question from a patient or a member have the context, have the history, and then they can solve that problem in one call, in one conversation, in a much faster and highly efficient manner so that you are not continuously having to create a big backlog on the back end and have to call back people again and again. We can bring an entire, we can bring essentially a sense of efficiency into the system by solving for these specific problems, right? So that's also a great when we have these specific scenarios. But yeah, generally trying to have a chatbot that today would start to act like a human. I mean, that right now is still a dream. Really? So what you're talking about, the Microsoft example is a great story in kind of in two ways. One, what we've been talking about today, which is bad design. For those who don't know the story, back in like 2015, 2016, Microsoft launched a conversational AI 
on Twitter that would learn from other people's interactions and come up with semi-supervised or unsupervised ways of responding to it. So what happened was that you had internet trolls and internet trolls realized that a big part of Pi, which is the name of the chatbot, was predicated on like repeat after me function. So you had all these mm-hmm. trolls who flooded the bot with like racist, anti-Semitic stuff, knowing that Ty would pick that up and then render it as answers moving forward. And then, of course, what happened is exactly this, is that Ty ended up being racist. But that's a great example of, of bad design. You didn't account for these parameters, which is mm-hmm. people actively trying to sabotage you, which like you be Microsoft, yeah. you should. Because like people are going to do it just for kicks, right? So that was yeah. a, a major flaw in the design of the chatbot. But the other thing that to me is very regrettable is because it perpetuated this issue with chatbots. Is what was Microsoft's way of dealing with it? They took it offline, and that was it. So then, what yeah. happened in the collective imagination is you had something that didn't work, and then you abandoned it. Versus yeah. like you take it down. You fix the algorithm and then you release it back into the wild. And that comes with like how companies are very risk adverse. And when you got all that criticism, you just abandoned it. Mm -hmm. But in in a big way, Microsoft did a disservice to the AI community and anybody in the chatbot Mm -hmm. world with solutions because like, okay, you did it, you failed, but instead of fixing it, you just washed it away and moved on. It's kind of like the conclusion, if you will, or the lesson of the day for anybody listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, which is like, be mindful that artificial intelligence is not a one and done thing. It's something you have to constantly improve over time. And AI will get better. The more data you have, the more rules you have, but also what you talked about, which is you need to have human intervention. You need to have mm-hmm. humans who do not only look at any AA output and then see does this make sense, but also help it improve over time. And it's a collaborative effort to improve it versus saying I've launched it and it's someone else's business or I launched it and I don't care what happens next. It's like with anything in life, it's not a one and done deal. And AI on its face value and as a technology has tremendous potential to reshape everyday life and decision making for the better as long as people have the patience and the funding, if you will, to invest in it and to make sure that AI gets better over time. I wholeheartedly Uh, agree. And I will also say one more thing is that design is extremely, extremely critical. One of the word of advice I'll say is that there's a lot of hubris out there, and the Microsoft example also, that creates a sense of fear for AI. I would implore all of us as AI practitioners and the people who are looking at bettering the future of humanity is to cut through that and look for where AI can today solve our problem. And there are plenty and plenty of areas where we can. In hospitals, in medical practitioners, with pharmacies, with telehealth, with virtual reality, AI-enabled virtual reality and augmented reality, there are ways to solve problems that exist today. And what comes down to it comes down to it is an approach towards, number one, being able to take a calculated risk. Number two, ensuring that our data is good. Or if it's not, then at least find ways to track it. There are ways within AI 
with synthesizing of the data that we can address these types of challenges. And then the number three, I would say, is that pick a problem and then run with it and then take it. Like, don't abandon it, run it, run with it. Because we learn so much. And even in failure, like let's say Microsoft failure there with the chatbot, there's so much learning out of that too in terms of what types of chatbots or AI solutions are ready for prime time for a general audience versus highly contextualized chatbots or conversational AI that are extremely good and and the technology today is there to drive that efficiency in the business processes. So it's cutting through what's possible today versus the future and then what we are ready to do and then taking a calculated risk around that. And we will collectively make essentially the human life better for today and for the future. I'm Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer of Pactera Edge. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as well. Thanks for listening to the Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Don't forget to visit us at healthcareweekly.com. Subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app to get a notification every time a new episode is released. Do you know of an inspirational health leader who should be on our podcast? Email us at hello at healthcareweekly.com with details. Healthcare Weekly Podcast. Healthcare innovation starts here.